Hi, thank you for joining us on one of the most comprehensive podcasts devoted exclusively to family offices, Family Office World. I'm your host, Ron Diamond, Chairman and CEO of Diamond Wealth. We represent over 100 single family offices ranging in size from $250 million to $30 billion. I've been the keynote speaker at dozens of family office conferences around the globe and have spoken at over 150 family office conferences in the past five years. I've consulted with dozens of firms that want to work with family offices, including banks, accounting firms, law firms, philanthropies, and various service providers who want to know what it takes to get in the door and then ultimately add value to the family office community. Family Office World takes you deep inside the inner workings of this mysterious $10 trillion industry. Each episode will have a different family office matriarch or patriarch discuss in depth how and why they created their family office. Our goal is twofold. One, help family offices become more institutionalized and connect with each other directly around the globe. And two, help service providers navigate the best way to add value and ultimately have family offices as clients. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Thank you. Pete Cadence is a serial entrepreneur and philanthropist, currently serving as chairman of the Cadence Family Foundation, a charitable organization dedicated to igniting pathways out of poverty through equitable access to education. Pete is also chairman of the Catalyst Capital, a family-owned and run private equity firm. Pete retired in August 2018 as the CEO of Green Thumb Industries, one of the largest publicly traded legal cannabis operators in the U.S., with a current market cap of over $4 billion. Prior to that, in 2008, Pete started one of the largest commercial solar companies in the U.S., SoCore Energy, named one of Chicago's most innovative businesses by Chicago Innovation Awards. He employed over 4,000 people and created billions in shareholder value over his 18-year career as a CEO. Pete was named one of Crane Chicago Business 40 Under 40 in 2012. And in 2019, he was named a Henry Crown Fellow of the Aspen Institute, a fellowship that accepts roughly 20 individuals from around the world each year to create ventures that solve society's intractable problems. Pete is the chairman emeritus at Streetwise and sits on several of their boards in the for-profit and nonprofit space, including the YMCA, the YWCA, and National Lewis University. Pete also served on the board of the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center from 2003 to 2010, and he founded the Holocaust Remembrance Board in 2002. In 2019, Pete founded Hope Toledo in his hometown of Toledo, Ohio, to ensure that Toledo public school children and a parent could go to post-secondary school for free. He also founded and served as co-chairman of the board of Hope Chicago, the largest place-based scholarship program in the country that will spend $1 billion over the next decade, sending underserved Chicago families to college. Hope Chicago was twice featured on 60 Minutes in 2022. Pete earned his BA in political science from Bucknell University, where he's awarded the Distinguished Alumnus for Citizenship. Pete was inducted into the Hall of Fame at his high school, Ottawa Hills High School in Toledo, Ohio, and he was also inducted in the Chicago Innovation Hall of Fame in August 2022. Pete and his wife, Amy, have known each other for over 40 years and have three beautiful school-aged children. Pete is also a mensch. Well, I'm thrilled to have you, Pete, as a guest. I, I consider you a close friend. 
but you're also a role model in so many different ways. And there's a lot that I want to unpack during this podcast. I do want to start out. You've recently, you were featured on 60 Minutes. You've started a family office. You've sold your company. Your company went public. You've had a lot of really good things happen to you. Of everything that's happened to you right now, what are you most grateful for? Ron, well, thank you for having me and feel the same way about you as a friend and uh, and a comrade and change and opportunity here in the family office sector. You know, like you said, I got a lot to be proud of. I also have some failures uh, along the way. Ron, as you know, my my restaurant was, was one of those. So it's not been straight up uh, and to the right always in terms of success. You know, I think the easy thing to say and the, the honest thing to say is I'm most proud of my family. And I, I think that goes without saying. So I'm going to give you another perspective, which is I am super proud about the impact that my family and I have been able to make in the philanthropic space. My wife has given away more diapers to families in need than any human in the history of Chicago, about 15 million diapers to, to families in need. And that's her own thing. And she's working on a big project with Walmart right now. Amy's goal, my wife's goal is to make sure that no Chicagoan, you know, ever has a need for diapers. And my goal is to make sure that no Chicagoan ever has a need for access to quality education. And so between the two of us, uh, I guess I'm just really proud that we're taking our good fortune and leveraging it to try and make good here in the city of Chicago, because it certainly needs more people to be doing this type of work because we have lots of intractable issues in this community. Now, I'm guessing this didn't just happen overnight. I'm guessing your philanthropic spirit came childhood or, or a little bit later. Can you touch on, was there a moment or did something happen where there was an aha moment or was it just you see that the world's unfair and you wanted to do good? Yeah. When I was eight years old, my parents weren't wealthy. Uh, they were they were solid middle class. My dad was a professor at a local Ohio public university, the University of Toledo, and my mom was a four-term elected official in our in our community. And so I had a, a politician and a teacher as parents, real civil servants, uh, people who cared about their work. My dad graduated second in his class from Stanford. I mean, he he didn't have to become an academic. My dad could have done just about anything, but he really cared about teaching the younger generations. And that's what that's what mattered to him. When I was eight years old, my father was granted a very unique academic sabbatical. This is 1985. And uh, we were able to travel to 20 countries around the world. And my dad was studying economic systems in developing countries. And so I found myself in unique places like communist red China on an academic exemption, Calcutta, India, had an interesting experience with a, a hijacked plane from Greece to uh, Rome, a TWA plane, you know, like all sorts of stuff just happened to me. I'm eight years old. My aperture was opened up to the world and the realities of the world. And then I will just say that there was one moment in particular. I'm floating down the Klong canals in Bangkok. And Bangkok in 1985 was not the contemporary city it, it is today. There are parts of the Klong canals where you see squalor and poverty like you've never seen before, literally kids bathing in the same canals that, you know, dead animals are floating in and people are defecating in. And man, when I saw these kids who were my age, smiling and playing, not knowing, it, they didn't know that like I was a middle-class kid from Ohio and I had all the stuff I could, I could swim in a clean swimming pool, you know, not in some dirty canal. I don't know, that just opened up my lens. And I told my parents like right when I got back from that trip, and that was a, a seven month trip, I wanted to do something in poverty. I wanted to help people who were poor. I just knew it from that second. And then fast forward, like to graduate from high school, my senior thesis was written on three days and three nights I spent in a homeless shelter in Toledo, Ohio. 
my parents weren't thrilled about it, but they let me do it because it was a passion of mine. So yeah, this notion, this anthropological fascination with poverty and alleviating poverty has been with me now for, you know, over almost four decades. It seems that homelessness and education are your two major focuses. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say homelessness is, but I've kind of, not that I've graduated from homelessness because it's an intractable issue in our community. And I was the chairman of the board of Streetwise here in Chicago, a big nonprofit focused on homeless for 12 years, very passionate about it. But what I realized is this, Ron, that's why I've kind of split off and really focused more on education is that with the homeless or the people on the who are on the verge of homelessness who has helping at Streetwise, really on average, it was a 47-year-old man, person of color with a felony history. That was kind of the average profile of the people we were helping. And no matter what I did, the help we could provide them was largely incremental. And what I realized is like, while I love those folks and I want to help them, my ultimate goal is to keep people out of that track, to keep people away from the criminal justice system, to keep people away from poverty. And that really starts in utero because that's when poverty starts is in utero. So I made the decision to really, even though I am a stole large donor to Streetwise, which is now controlled by the YWCA here in Chicago, like I focus most of my attention on making sure that kids get to the point where they're successful. So they never have to experience some of this tragedy and some of this homelessness. So that's really my passion and my focus. I remember you had told me a story that I think you were 30 or in your early 30s and you were in a car, you know, a nice car and you saw somebody homeless and you stopped the car. Can you talk about that? Because every single person has driven by people and very few people stop the car, open the door up and want to talk to them. And you don't know if this guy's armed or crazy or anything. So why did you do that? And, and tell me what happened. Yeah. I was 30 years old. It was in April of 2008. And it was a crazy bad weather day for April 20th, freezing rain, horrible, horrible day. 30 years old. I just sold my first company. I'm sitting in my, you know, big boat Mercedes that I wouldn't even drive today. And now I'm 45, you know, whatever. I made some money and I was a high ego kid. And I'm in my car waiting for the doors to open at a conference I was attending. And uh, about 15 feet away from me in the freezing rain was a homeless man. He actually had a kind of a raggedy suit and tie on, but you know, he was homeless. And I was like, well, shit, I mean, uh, I can't be here and he can't be there. That doesn't seem fair. And I did at that moment, I recall the quote, which has really been the defining quote of my entire life. And the quote is the biggest gap in the world is the gap between I should and I did. And that has proven to be true for so many people. Like how many people out there have said, when they walk by a homeless person, you know, I should do more than just give him a dollar. I should buy this guy a meal or help him get a job or help him get educated or, but they don't, you know, that's where that gap between I should and I did comes in. And in that moment, I thought about that quote and I was like, you know what, screw it. I'm going to go ask this guy to sit in my car and warm up and, you know, if I can help him, I will. So I did. And reluctantly, his name was Troy McCullough. Troy joined me in my car. And I always like to say the next 45 minutes changed my life. Because what I learned in that 45 minutes is that he was homeless and had been homeless for seven years. He didn't meet any of the traditional permutations that we think of when we think of homelessness. We usually think of drug addicted, mentally ill, veteran who suffered PTSD. Troy was actually none of those things. He was sober. He was a deacon in his church and super pious. You know, he was not a veteran. He wasn't a troublemaker. He probably had an intellectual deficiency of some kind. 
And he just had a hard life. He had a stroke at a young age, was paralyzed in his left leg and blind in his left eye. His wife died early. He was left with two kids. He ended up in a nursing home at the age of 43. Like all sorts of crazy stuff just happened to this guy. And you know what I realized? Like misfortune plays no favorites in this life. What happened to him could have happened to anybody, but it did happen to him. And he was vaulted in the, in the utter poverty and homelessness. And, and so, yeah, I posted a website. This was before Facebook and things going viral on social media and stuff. I posted up this one page website called savetroy.com. And yeah, over the next 48 hours, I ended up raising money from people across 32 States and it became a massive fundraiser. And for the next five and a half years while he was alive, uh, he was a severe diabetic and he ended up dying, um, you know, a couple of years later, he had a home and we got him a job and we got him trained and educated and he was able to become an ordained minister. And like, I, I like to say we played a role in helping him navigate those last five and a half years of his life. And I'm very proud of that. But that, that opened me up to the notion that again, misfortune plays no favorites and we got to help others when we see the chance to do so. It's an amazing story. Once you sold your company, which was a green thumb, or your company went public, one of the first things you did is set up a family office. And I want to ask a couple of questions about that. But you also, you have a term that I would assume you trademark called philanthropeneur. And I think it's so appropriate because when you look at what some of these family offices can do, they could really make a difference. It's not just that they have money. My father passed at 57 when he had prostate cancer. And my first boss was Michael Milken. And Michael Milken developed prostate cancer. When he got out of jail, he did more for the cure of prostate cancer than anybody. I mean, he rather than spending, you know, putting $100 million in the American Cancer Society, he put 250000 here, 500000 here. Built it like a venture firm. And because of him, you and I will die with, but not of, prostate cancer. And you look at what Gates did for the vaccines, argued he did more than the U.S. government. So... My North Star, and one of the reasons I'm so thrilled to have you, is I believe that in order to make a difference with philanthropy, you have to have a business mindset, too. You can't run a philanthropy exactly like a business, but there's no way Milken could have done what he did if he wasn't wired that way. So talk to me about how you kind of combine your business acumen and the philanthropic side, because I think it's so imperative. That's a great question, Ron. You bring up a great point. I always say to people, and I stole this, I'll give Dory McWhorter uh, credit for this. Uh, she's the CEO of the YMCA here in Chicago and someone I have a lot of admiration for. And this is stolen from her, but 501c3 is a tax status, not a business model. And uh, it's important to remember that. Like a lot of times people go into this philanthropic 501c3 nonprofit space and they're, you know, it's, it's cute and it's nice and we're saving puppies and kids and you know, adopting people from other countries and all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, the metrics have to be the same. The organization has to be focused on standing on its own. It has to have a positive cash flow in order to help people. It has to have a mission, vision, and values in order to help people. You have to have staff and the staff has to be used appropriately to their highest and best use in order to be effective. And like, so all the principles and tenets I learned over 20 years of running five different companies. And like you said, Ron, taking the public, are the same tenets I bring to the nonprofit world. I put a good, a good, high quality, diverse board together who's got not only diversity of race, religion, gender, and so on, but also diversity of thoughts because you never want a bunch of people sitting around the table who think exactly the same thing. The echo chamber doesn't work when growing a business. We need to make sure that we're bringing more money in than we're putting out because we got to survive. We have to have a sustainable business model. You know, you have to have great leaders, which is why for Hope Chicago, I hired, in my opinion, a woman who I think is the best educator in the history of Chicago, Dr. Janice Jackson, the former CEO of Chicago Public Schools, uh, Toronto Hope Chicago. 
it's all the same principles, probably just with a slightly different mission. You know, if, if we look at Morton Friedman's, you know, view of, of shareholder capitalism, corporate profits aren't a big thing. They're the only thing, right? That's probably the only thing that's different. We're not about maximizing profit, but we have to have enough profit to make sure that we're sustainable long-term. So it's a little bit of a different ethos with the nonprofit space. But yeah, I, I run my nonprofit boards and organizations like I run a company. Uh, hold people accountable, be disciplined and rigid with your mission, your values, stay in your lane, be focused. And those are the things that work. And I've been running nonprofit boards for going on 15 years now. In fact, uh, one little thing, Ron, just for the other family offices out there who may run nonprofits as well, just one tiny little thing that I thought made a big difference. Most of the nonprofits I come into, the title of their number one person is executive director. I have always, at Streetwise, for example, I shifted that. The executive director became the chief executive officer because I wanted that person to act and think like a chief executive. And so tiny little shift, but the mentality of the leader running the organization does change to a more business mindset when they're the CEO versus the executive director. So uh, I spent a lot of my time focusing on that. And that's a great question. Thank you. So Hope Chicago, I was actually there, as you remember, at, at the school. You were on 60 Minutes. I was on 60 Minutes, but you couldn't see me because I was probably too small for most of the people to see. I do remember I had goosebumps because I knew uh, 60 Minutes was there. And this is I want you to, to kind of walk people through it because I, I knew what was going to happen. You were about to change the lives of hundreds of people, kids and adults. And I think the they thought it was just an assembly for just parents and, and kids. Walk me through that moment when you basically told them what is happening and what your emotions were. Yeah, I did an interview the other day and they asked me what it was like. How do you replicate that feeling? And I, I said, there are certain moments in life for all of us, hopefully for all of us, if we've lived uh, good lives that are so euphoric that you spend the rest of your life trying to replicate those. And the example I gave when I was a senior in high school, I was, believe it or not, a good, a very good basketball player. I know the five nine Jewish kid from Toledo, um, that may surprise people, but uh, I was an all-state basketball player. And uh, my senior year, my team was damn good. And, you know, we made it to the state quarterfinals, you know, running out of the tunnel as a 18 year old kid, uh, you know, six, seven, 8,000 people screaming. It's like, I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about that moment. And I, I didn't go on to play college athletics and I've always been trying to replicate that moment because it was like, it was the most powerful moment of my life, at least up to that point. And I would say that Probably one of the few things other than taking my company public, perhaps, uh, and obviously, you know, sharing the birth of three children with my wife that have matched that degree of euphoria was the five schools we went to in the last week of February in 2022, announcing that, yeah, 4,000 people would be going to college or trade school for free. It's very tantalizing. It can be overwhelming. But just the notion that what we were doing as a community was changing the trajectory of thousands of lives. You can't possibly understand. I, I, I couldn't sleep at all that week. I had, I had to put on makeup because I had like huge bags under my eyes because I, I was so jacked up and had so much adrenaline. So it was magical. But I would say, and the last thing I'll say, Ron, on this is that as magical was after it was all over and, you know, things have settled down a little bit and people started vacating the auditorium, whatever, a couple people stick around and they, you know, they talk to you. And what we heard from the families who stuck around, you know, 
Of course, they said thank you. And what's interesting, they never thank you for the money, which I like, you know, because at the end of the day, this is about money. If there wasn't money, these people wouldn't be going to college. But they thank you for the opportunity to see them as equals. They thank you for the notion that you believe enough in them to invest your money in them. And so it reminds me of this, this heartwarming notion that just believing in someone, just telling them you believe in them and investing in them is sometimes enough to catalyze the rest of their lives. And so, yes, very magical moment and something I hope I can repl replicate many more times because we started with five schools and the hope with our work at Hope Chicago is we can do something like 25 schools. So, I mean, big picture, you know, Hope Chicago is you're going into the most underserved areas in Chicago and, and educating both a child and a parent, which I think is really interesting that you're doing. But this can be scale. It's available in Chicago, but this could work in Detroit. This could work in Newark, New Jersey. This could work in Elgin, Illinois. This could work in a lot of different places. So do you have a goal where you'd like this to be? Because again, Chicago is where we live, but it's not the whole world. Yeah, yeah, I do have a dream. You know, I've studied social mobility a lot, which is the notion of what's the capability of someone to go from the lowest quintile of income to the highest quintile of income over the course of their lives. There's a study by Raj Chetty, who actually I'm just starting the process of getting to know him. He's a fascinating Harvard professor and anthropologist who's studying poverty and its impact in the United States. And through his work, he has deduced that the likelihood of being born in the lowest quintile of income in the United States and ever at any one point making it to the highest quintile of income over the course of your life is 7%. Now, remember, the highest quintile of income is $92,000 a year. Now, that may sound like a lot to some people, but in reality, especially if you live in Chicago or New York, one of these big markets, we all know $92,000 is still not a good deal of money. You're still living on the margins, but that is the highest quintile of income, which, which is to say, like, you know, that doesn't seem that audacious to achieve. And this number, 7%, is one of the lowest numbers of any democratized and developed economy in the entire world. And we are sitting here in the freest and fairest and most capitalistic country in the entire world. And so, you know, then I studied countries like Singapore, which has its own flaws. It's not a perfect place. That's for, that's for sure. It's not a perfect democracy. No place is. But they have one of the highest, if not the highest, social mobility in the world. Reason being, leader named Lee Kuan Yew, who led the country for over 30 years, he created this notion that every child gets educated the same. Every child gets the same quality education, the same curriculum, the same access across Singapore. And what that means is social mobility outcomes are better. I believe to my core that that is the intent here. I believe that if we can create a paradigm where access to education and quality curriculum is the same for everybody, the same for the kids in the wealthy white suburbs of Chicago as it is for the underserved South and West Sides communities. Like we can make major change and reduce inequities in this country. And so my vision is to leverage what we do in Hope Chicago to, yes, have followers in Hope Peoria, Hope Indianapolis, Hope Charlotte. And we have a lot of those people who are interested and we're talking to them. But also really more than that, Ron, is to push policy. Because I do believe that if we can prove that something works at scale in Chicago and in Toledo, Ohio, my hometown, and get great outcomes, we can create a policy agenda that it would be very hard for folks at the state level and at the federal level to turn down. Because we can prove that if we invest in these kids and these families, we can start to eradicate poverty and the attractable issues around poverty. So my goal 
is to change poverty ultimately in this country, but to do it through educational outcomes and to push a policy agenda that allows for better, more equitable funding for education. You're, I guess, the definition of what I'd call a lifelong learner. You're going to learn the rest of your life. And you had said to me, I know you were a Henry Crown Fellow from the Aspen Institute. And the Aspen Institute, I just joined the Leadership Circle, and it's an incredible organization. Can you touch on why or how that had so much impact on you? You told me point blank, had you not done this, you would not have been able to accomplish what you've done. So the Henry Crown Fellowship at the Aspen Institute is uh, the 500 of us uh, in the world, and it's the flagship fellowship of the Aspen Institute. It's mostly business leaders from all around the world. In my class, I had uh, 21 fellows in my class. I had people from Nigeria, Czechoslovakia, Estonia, the UK. Really, it's the best. I mean, the founder of Skype, the CEO of NBC Universal, Poppy Harlow, who's an anchor on CNN, you know, all between the ages of 30 and 45. And what's interesting about this group, though, is that not everybody aligns with me, ideologically or otherwise. Uh, in fact, I would say there's a number of people in this group who are polar opposite of me, ideologically and politically. And, you know, when you get to a point of being a successful person, successful enough to have a family office, you can kind of get into your comfort zone and sit in your echo chamber and not have to talk to anybody who disagrees with you. you, you you've graduated to that level. I don't need to sit in a room and talk to people who don't agree with my politics because it's a waste of my time, right? I mean, and I don't need, I'm rich enough. I don't need to do that. But actually what I found is that putting myself out there, being vulnerable, being a little insecure, being challenged by people who thought differently than me, hearing how they came to a different conclusion than I did, helped make me a better person. Helped me understand that I don't have a monopoly on good ideas. Helped me understand that I have to make impact in this world, but I have to make it through the lens of the people who I'm trying to impact, not from my own lens. And I always say, like, there is an issue in this country where we have rich white people like me, and they kind of become what I would call white messiahs. You know, they go into the black and brown communities thinking to have the answers to their problems, but reality is they haven't gotten proximate enough to understand their problems. So how can you solve them? So for example, you know, what 60 Minutes didn't mention, by the way, which I maybe was a little surprised about, but what they didn't mention in our 13 minute segment was that I actually taught in that school, the very school that they profiled, Johnson College Prep in Englewood. I taught there. I was a part-time teacher there, but that is how I got proximate. I understood the issues relative to those scholars. In fact, one of my favorite students is coming over to my house to swim and hang out this afternoon from Johnson College Prep, a young, young black man who had a really tough life and he's going to University of Chicago. I learned from the Henry Crown Fellowship and the Aspen Institute, I have to put myself in vulnerable spots. I have to talk to people and learn from people who disagree with me to understand where they come from. And I have to get myself proximate to the problems if I hope to solve them. So that's been a magical, and I would say a very tough journey as well. It was not easy. There was a lot of work and a lot of, I would say, personal work. I had to work on me a lot to become a good fellow. That's a fantastic story. And again, it's an incredible organization. Um, you know, you touched on vulnerability and we met initially. I run a couple of Tiger 21 groups in Chicago and you joined. Can you talk about, first of all, did you know anything about Tiger before you get a call from me? And how has that changed you as far as how you look at the world? Because it's an incredibly unique model. Ron, when you and I talked, we were introduced by Avi Weintraub in Miami, who was an investor of mine in Green Thumb Industries. He had been saying I should consider this for years. I was like, yeah, it sounds like a cult and like, uh, 
bunch of rich white dudes. And like, yeah, I, I was, to be honest with you, I was skeptical. Now you're a very good salesperson, very compelling. And you're also honest. And I think you made some great points. And so I, I went in, I would say cynical and I paid the fee and I was like, all right, we'll, we'll see how this goes. And I got to say, kind of like the Aspen Institute, it's become, it's become home for me. It's a group of, my group is uh, 15 folks. You know, it's not as eclectic and different as my Henry Crown group because we're all Chicagoans. You know, Chicagoans tend to lean a certain way politically. We're more similar than we are different in most cases. But, you know, we all have different life stories. We all have different ways of getting to where we've gotten. And so what I've been able to do with Tiger 21 is here are the stories of other people who have amassed wealth understand the challenges and ups and downs they had, and also the pitfalls. There's one gentleman in our group, I won't mention names, but I mean, this guy's been bankrupt and super rich, like more times than I can count. He's just <laughs> up and down and up and down. And and there's so much tragedy that's happened in his personal life. And you know what? And just like hearing him talk, it's not only fascinating, but also really instructive. Like there was some pitfalls that he fell into that frankly, I, I can avoid. And so I learn a lot from these other people, many of whom are, I think I'm actually the youngest in my forum. And they teach me a lot about the things that I should do, but also the things that maybe I shouldn't do. Like they've made some mistakes that I can probably avoid. So it's been an awesome group. And then lastly, I'll just say like, some of these people have become very close friends. In fact, one person in my group is now one of my business partners. And you know, the last thing I'll say, Ron, is we had a super interesting conversation at the Henry Crown Fellowship and my last week as, a, as an active fellow um, a couple of weeks ago. And many of the people in my Aspen Fellowship are lonely. And you know what's interesting is like when you get to a certain level of success and wealth, it does at times become lonely. Because for my friends who make a million or two million dollars a year, by all means, they're super successful. But their lives are different and what they go through is different. And, you know, they don't get requests every day to donate. I mean, I get 50 emails a day on people who want me to donate or participate or be on the board or something, which is awesome. I appreciate that. I go through different things than most of my buddies go through. And so to be in Tiger with a group of folks who have all done well financially and can associate with some of the stuff that I'm going through has been uh, has just been an awesome experience. Thank you for providing me that. Share it. Well, people see the nice house, the nice lifestyle that you live, but they don't see the sleepless nights and all the problems that uh, we have. And yeah, I used to think vulnerability was a weakness, but it's actually a strength. Would you agree with that? I, I think it's one of the best things I have going for me now is that I'm willing to be vulnerable. I'm willing to put myself in uncomfortable spots. My father, who's 87 years old, has always challenged me, like, don't just like sit around and become complacent because you're rich now. And like, now you can sit in your echo chamber, like go out and challenge yourself. And he's right. He was the same person who at the age of 14 said, Pete, you're going down a path. You could either be a follower or a leader. You choose. And I chose leader, but he challenged me to choose that. So yeah, I think if you get rich and you want to remain a leader, you have to put yourself in a spot where you're vulnerable or else effectively you're going to become a follower. It's a really good way to look at it. And then how do you look at everything that, that you've gone through, both positive and negative, talking to other family offices? Because you know the family office world, which is kind of where I live. In general, it's fragmented, it's siloed, it's, it's inefficient in many different ways. How do you think that family offices can work together where one plus one can equal 10? 
we made the decision to do a single family office instead of participate in a multifamily office. There were a couple of reasons for that. One of which is that the vast majority of my wealth came from cannabis and many financial institutions see me as a money launderer, even still to this day. It, it, it's tricky with me. I'm, I'm a little bit of a trickier client than, than most wealthy people who have family offices, but we do a lot of deals with other family offices. They show us deals, we show them deals, but we also commiserate on strategy and, you know, we learn a lot from one another. And I like commiserating as part of Tiger 21, Ron. I've become fortunate enough to be part of a, a philanthropy group in Tiger 21. And, you know, it's 15 or 20 people from around the world to talk about their philanthropy and have to defend their philanthropy, like we defend our portfolios and the local chapters at, at Tiger. And so, you know, just talking to other family offices about how they see the world, where they're investing, you know, where they're thinking about their core philanthropy dollars, like super instructive, super helpful to me and my family office. And the other thing I would say is like, I spent a lot of time trying to connect my CEO. My I have five people work for my family office, but my CEO who's awesome, he's been working with me for 12 or going on 13 years. I spent a lot of time introducing him to other leaders of family offices because these guys and gals are just, they're, they're idea generators. They brainstorm together. They have fun together. And like I said earlier, you know, I don't pretend to believe I have a monopoly on good idea, good ideas, nor do the people in my family office. And so we all become a source of idea generation for one another. And it's fun. You know, when you're talking to another family office, they're not just poaching you for money. I don't love being just poached for money because I don't want to just be known as some wealthy guy. I want to be known as a guy who has an intellect and empathy and character and all these other things too. And when you're talking to some family office peers, it's not just about money because they have their own money. It's also, they want to assess your intellect. They want to hear what your ideas are. So that, that makes it fun and a little bit more benign than some of these other interactions that people are coming to you for money. Well, I could talk to you for hours. Fascinating life that you've lived. If people want to learn about Hope Chicago, what's the easiest or best way to do that? Yeah, sure. So www.hopechicago.org. We love people to get involved. We love people to donate. We are raising a billion dollars to send 30,000 families to college or trade school here in, in the Chicago area. But they can also uh, run through you or through my LinkedIn, reach out to me directly and tell me what their interest is. Or if there's a family office and you like what we're doing, I'd say watch the 60-minute segment on Hope Chicago. It's aired twice, once on May 22nd and once in August of this year as well. Watch that episode. And if you like what you see and you want to do something in your hometown, uh, shoot me a, a note on LinkedIn. I'm pretty accessible on LinkedIn and happy to talk. Ron, thank you for the opportunity. Sure. Well, look, it's been great. And I'm proud to call you friend. And I think even though you're only 45, you have the definition of the life well lived. So congratulations on everything you've accomplished. Thank you, sir. Thank you for joining us on Family Office World. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, rate it five stars and leave a review. Join us again next time for another episode of Family Office World. Thank you and have a great week. 